Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Isn't it good to see the sun uh, this morning? That was uh, encouraging to me on my drive here. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 through 24 this morning. And um, I hope you guys had a good week. I hope you had a nice Valentine's Day. Um, I need to start by um, addressing the obvious, and that is apparently I am a glasses guy now. So uh, on um, Monday, I went and got my eyes checked, and I hadn't gotten my eyes checked, I don't think, since elementary school, when they would make the whole class kind of go through and do it. So I kind of noticed that my eyes were getting tired, and I was like, maybe this is the reason why I'm getting some headaches. And I'm like, Mary, I need to schedule an eye appointment. So we scheduled one, and I went in there, and you know, you do all the tests, you got to read the lines and numbers, and they, you know, look at the dots, and how many dots do you see, all of those tests. And when the tests were done, I asked the doctor, I'm like, so um, how did I do? And the doctor said, well, um, the good news is it's still legal for you to drive. And then I'm like, that doesn't sound good, right? Like, I know where this is going. And I'm like, so I need glasses, huh? And she's like, yep, you definitely need glasses. So pick the glasses out. It takes a couple hours for them to get it ready. And I come back and I pick them up and I get them on and I'm driving home for the first time wearing glasses. And I'm like, man, I can read the license plate of the car in front of me again. Like, this is so nice. So... Just so you guys know, the, the way Valentine's worked at the Wisens home was Cal got glasses, Mary found out she had shingles, and uh, Judah was on the floor of our room all night running 102 degree fever. So I will just say life comes at you fast in your mid-30s. And uh, I sent a picture of me and my glasses to my mom. She asked to see them, and her response was, oh, I love them. They remind me just of your grandpa. Like, you remind me of your grandpa. Right? I'm like, not helping, Mom, right? Not what I'm looking for in this moment. So hopefully your Valentine's was better um, than ours. But in some ways, it's fitting because today we're talking about change. And there's just changes that happen in life. And sometimes change is absolutely unavoidable. You get older. Your kids get older. The dynamics of those relationships change. You might move. You might get a new job. You might lose a job. And, and there's all sorts of change that um, happens. I've heard this joke before that they say the problem when people get married is, is that the wife always believes she can change her husband, and the husband believes that his wife will never, ever change. And it causes all sorts of conflict in marriage as things continue. But change is inevitable. But there's another type of change that we're going to talk about, and, and that's the kind of change that needs to happen in our lives. We call this transformation, that the power of God living in us produces a transformed life, that being a Christian means a change in who we are. This is what Paul is talking about this morning. And here's why I'm excited. A couple of mornings ago, I had a meeting really early here at church. I had a 6.30 meeting, so it was a little bit after 6. I was getting in my car to come here, and we had snow the night before. And my um, house, it's on a, on a hill, and my driveway, it's slanted down, and I didn't see it. But there was some black ice at the bottom of my driveway. So I'm going down my drive, and all of a sudden I start to skid, and I'm hitting the brakes, and I'm trying to control it. But all of a sudden, my car kind of does that 90-degree spin, as I'm coming down my driveway, and then I, I kind of hit the bottom of the driveway. And I'm like, oh, that wasn't too bad. Well, then I go and hit the gas to keep moving, and my car's not moving. I've gotten into a snowbank, and I'm stuck. How many Michiganders here have been stuck in a snowbank before, right? Isn't that such a defeated feeling when you hit the gas and your car doesn't move anywhere? And you're like, oh, no, this is a bigger problem than I can fix right now sitting in this seat. Like, I was stuck. And if we could be honest, I think there's a lot of us in here this morning who you feel stuck. 
And maybe there's some things in your life that aren't healthy, that aren't right, that you know are not honoring to the Lord, and you're like, I just don't know how to move past these habits or behaviors. I feel stuck. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I'm trying to do the right things. I'm coming to church. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I just feel so far away from the Lord. Like when I think about Jesus, he is this character that's very, very far away. He's not near. He's not transforming my life. He's not changing me. And I'm a little bit nervous. Am I even saved because it's not producing what I thought it would produce and I'm feeling stuck? Well, I think that the Lord um, is giving us this passage today because he wants to break us free uh, of where we come in here this morning stuck. And I'm praying all week that he does a great work in our hearts So we're going to be in verses um, 17, but look at verse 1 again. I want to remind you of what we looked at last week. It says this, remember, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I said that this was the, basically the transforming verse in this book. He's switching gears, and he's like, all right, we need to walk in a manner worthy. And what does it mean? Do you guys remember what it means to walk in a manner worthy? What's that word he's pushing us towards? Someone, anyone, please. It's maturity, right? That to walk in a manner worthy means that we grow in maturity in Christ. And what he's saying is, is we can't just stay the same. And he's gonna reference this again in verse 17. Look what he says. He says, now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he's saying you can't walk like the Gentiles. Here's what's interesting. He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. So he's saying you've got to walk in a way that is different than those in your neighborhood and in your city that you live with. And he's saying you need to walk in a way that's different than how you have been living. So here's the first thing I want you to see, and this is what we get right. Listen, church, we know we need to change. I I think we have that right. I think if I were to ask, hey, does anyone in here, are they the finished product? Anyone here batting a thousand percent? No one would raise their hand. We know we need to change. And I think one of our biggest problems is actually we have a tendency to boil the entire Christian life down to a list of things that we need to do better. And that's what we think Christianity is. And and that's a problem. Like I'll ask people, hey, how are you doing? How's your relationship with the Lord? And guess how they'll respond? Oh man, I'm drinking a little bit too much. Or, oh man, I'm really getting mad at my kids again, or work is stressful and, and I've got a bad attitude, or, or our marriage is rocky. And even to think about what it means to have a relationship with God, we tend to boil down to just a list of things we should be doing better, and that's not the nature of Christianity at all. The nature of Christianity is, is we have a relationship with God, that the Lord speaks to us, that his spirit indwells in our heart and gives us peace and encouragement and hope, and we try to make it this list of things we know we need to change. Right, but we know that we need to change. James says that faith without works is dead, right? That if our faith isn't producing fruit of transformation, maybe we don't have a faith at all. And by the way, here's the other thing I would argue. This isn't just a Christian thing that people understand that they need to change. I think everyone knows this. This is why the self-help industry is worth billions of dollars. This is why people will spend thousands and thousands of dollars flying to a yoga retreat in Indonesia because they think that's going to be the thing that unlocks the the thing in their life they're missing or it's going to be what makes them a better person or finally give them peace. One of the universal effects of sin is that we are keenly aware that there is something broken inside of us. 
Now, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to describe the Gentiles and what we need to walk away from. Look at verse 18. He says this. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. So, so what Paul's doing here is, is he's describing how the Gentiles live, but more importantly, how they think. And the second thing I want you to see in this text is that our minds are what drive our actions. Our minds drive our actions. Look how many times Paul references the mind in those two verses. He says they're darkened in their understanding. That's a reference to how they think. He says that they're ignorant, that their hearts are hard, that they're callous. All of these are direct references to how we think and view the world. And what really jumped out at me, if you take notes in your Bible, underline that phrase, alienated from the life of God. Isn't that interesting that he uses that phrase? He says they're not just alienated from God relationally. It's not like there's just a problem between you and me and they're alienated. He says they're alienated from the life of God. Well, what's Paul talking about? Well, I heard one pastor describe it this way. It's this. Um, do you know that God is the creator and author of life? Like, how often do we think about that? When we think of God creating, we think of the things he created, right? He created the mountains. He created the ocean. He created the animals, the fish. But what, what Paul's saying is, is he didn't just create that. He created what it means to be alive. He is the author of life. So when we reject God, and say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. You're not my authority. I don't want a relationship with you. We're not just rejecting our creator. We're rejecting the life that we were created to live. God is the designer of life. And what he's saying is, is the Gentiles have alienated themselves from that because they've darkened their minds to what is true. Throw up the next slide. This is a very um, popular saying that we use here at Harvest all the time. It's very, very simple. You should memorize it. It's this. Is that you do what you do and you feel what you feel because you think what you think. And what Paul's saying here is that when you reject God or reject God as an authority, it's going to change how you feel, it's gonna change your desires, and ultimately it's going to change your actions. When you no longer love God or live to serve God or to please God, it's gonna change how you feel about God. It's gonna change how you act, it's gonna change how you live. How we think drives our actions. There's a million ways this plays out. Let me give you a few examples. Um, I've used this when I was a youth pastor a ton. I I would have students in my high school ministry that are like, I just hate school. And and here's what it boiled down to. They thought they were bad students. Well, if you think you're a bad student and you're like, I'm never going to get good grades. I'm never going to go to college. I, I, I hate school. It's all pointless. How are you going to feel at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning when your alarm goes off? Are you going to be excited to go to school or no? No, you're not going to be excited because you're like, I'm a bad student. It's pointless. It's not worth it. So if you don't feel good about school, how well are you going to pay attention? How seriously are you going to take it? Are you going to work hard to do your homework if you think you're a bad student and none of it matters anyway? You see, your mind drives your feelings. It drives your actions. Here's one. What if you believe that you married the wrong person? Right, man, I I should have married my high school sweetheart and I just got married to the wrong person. I have the wrong spouse. Do you think that's gonna impact how you feel about your spouse? 
Absolutely, right? Well, well, uh, you're a mistake, and we never should have gotten married anyways, and it's going to be easier for you to separate from that person emotionally or physically or whatever that might look like because it never should have happened in the first place, and it's ultimately going to impact your actions, how you treat them, where you go for um, life or, or, or friendship, all of those things. Here's one. Coming to church this morning. Right, if you think when your alarm went off this morning, man, I had a long weekend and I'm stressed out and next week's busy, I don't want to come to church, I don't think I have time, if that's what you think, how are you going to feel as you're walking into this place? Man, I don't really want to be here. And by the way, do you think that's going to impact how you engage in worship and how you engage even in listening to me as I speak right now? It totally is. But if your mindset is, man, God is so good, and he's faithful, and he's creator, and he's sustainer, and I need to draw near to him, and I need to get close to him, and be with people who, who love the Lord and lift him up in praise, and his spirit dwells in my heart, and his word is alive, and it can change my life, and it can make me a better husband and parent and follower of Jesus, and this is vital, it's going to change how you interact here. You're going to be leaning in. We understand that we need to change. Our mind is what drives our actions. That's why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this. It says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see where Paul says the battle starts? We take thoughts captive. All right, can I give you a free piece of advice? Here's a question I ask people almost every day, if not every week. I ask, hey, am I thinking right about this thing? If there's something going on in my life and it's frustrating or I'm stressed out, what I'll do is, is I'll get people who I trust, who I know love me and love the Lord, and be like, hey, guys, here's what's going on. Am I thinking rightly about this? And here's why I ask that, because I know that my thoughts impact my feelings and impact my actions, so I want to take thoughts captive, and I want people to help me make sure I'm thinking about this in a way that's right. Okay, so here's what we get wrong. If we know we need to change, and that's what we get right, here's what we get wrong, how we think change happens. We understand we need to change. Our problem is, is we tend to go about it in the wrong ways. And I want to talk right now about two bad ways that we try to make change happen. Here's the first. Throw up the next slide. The first is we just try to go by willpower. And if you read philosophers throughout history, they say this. They're like, all right, all of us have these bad desires, these things that are bad, that are harmful to us, but that we still want. And then we have these good desires, this future version of ourself that, that, that's way better than we are now. And what we need to do is we need to deny the bad and we need to press into the good. Right, So if you're type A, you write out your New Year's resolution list, and I'm just going to get up earlier, and I'm going to eat healthier, and I'm going to work out more, and I, I, I'm just going to, by my force of will, go after the good things, and, and I'm going to fight against the bad things. Um, it's funny, in the early church, there were monks, and they made like this vow of celibacy, and they made this promise that we're never going to get married, and we're never going to have sex, and... and what would happen is, is they would be walking in a village or in a town, and a beautiful woman would walk by, and they would start to have feelings of lust. And what they would do is, is they would run and find the quickest thorn patch they could find and throw themselves into it. 
And they're like, the way I'm going to defeat these feelings of lust, I'm going to throw myself into thorns and make myself feel physical pain, and that's what will drive it away. It's trying to use our own strengths and will. And the problem with this is we're trying to create a supernatural transformation without ever tapping in to the power of Christ. We're trying to do it on our own strength, and the result is, is we're exhausted, and we're defeated, and we give up. Like, I've hung out with way too many people who have tried to do life on their own terms and under their own power and tried to make themselves good enough and ultimately they end up quitting on Christianity before they ever even tried it because it was all about how strong could they be and the change they could make in their lives. It just doesn't work. Then here's the second wrong way is we say, no, the problem is it isn't that we need to change. The problem is we just need to be true to ourselves and let's just give in to the desires. That you have your truth and I have my truth and there is ultimately no right and wrong and let's just lean into the things we want and let's not care about how that hurts the people we love or impacts our kids. Let's just go for it and just do it and let's just lean into our desires, good or bad. Um, This is the grand experiment of secular humanism, and our country has been on this journey for about 60 years, and the results are starting to file in, and they're not great, right? I talked about this a lot in our worldview series, but we are more anxious, we're more depressed, we're more medicated, we're more suicidal, we're more miserable than we've ever been as a society. And I think about what we looked at earlier, that we have divorced ourselves from the author of life, and then we can't figure out why life isn't working. Right When we just give in, it leads to misery and depression. All right, but let's look at the good news. Look at verse 20. Now Paul's going to talk about how this change actually happens. He says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, church, here's what he's saying. He's saying that Christian transformation happens when we allow Jesus to make us a new people. Look at verse 20 again. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Again, if you take your notes in your Bible, um, underline that, that word Jesus, because Paul's doing something amazing here. In the book of Ephesians, Paul references Jesus over 50 times. I think 56 is the exact number, but he only refers to him by his first name once. He calls him Lord, he calls him King, he calls him Savior, he calls him the Christ. But here, he's like, no, 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 he's being as personal as he can. He goes, remember Jesus. Remember the truth that is in Jesus. He's calling the Ephesians to remember back on the life of Christ, who he was, how he loved people, what he lived for, how he cared for those that were marginalized. And he's saying, listen, do you want to understand how change happens? You have to look at the person of Jesus. And look what he says in verse 22. And to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see the language he's using? He's not talking about better and worse. He's talking about old and new. He's saying, put off the old, put on the new, put on your new self, get get rid of your old self that lies to you and is corrupt and put on the new. Well, why does he talk about that? Here's why. 
Because Jesus doesn't want to just transform your behavior. He wants to make you an entirely new person. And to understand this, we need to understand what Jesus accomplished while he was here on earth. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on this long analogy where he compares Adam with Jesus. And he actually calls Jesus the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 5, 21 through 22, it says this. It says, for by, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, here's what he's doing. He, he, he's saying this, that when God created the earth, he created the garden, he created the fish, he created the plants, and then he set Adam and Eve in the garden, and they had a specific job. They were the apex of God's creation. They were created after the image of God, and they were created to know God, love God, worship God, and represent God to the rest of the earth, all right? That's what Adam was tasked to do, all right? But sin corrupted that, and Adam failed because he chose himself rather than God, and sin has devastated the ability for us to have a relationship with God, right? The wages of sin is death, that sin separates us from God. So Jesus comes, and he's called the second Adam, not only because he succeeded where Adam failed. He never sinned. He always chose God over himself, and he paid the penalty that our sin requires. But listen, Jesus was also establishing a completely new race of people while he was on earth. And it's not a race of people that is defined by skin color or language or where they live, but he was creating a new people who were once again alive to God, that knew God, that had a relationship with God, that the spirit of God dwelt in them. And so what Paul's saying is, is remember Jesus He's not trying to make better people or good people even better or bad people good. He came to make dead people alive and old people new. He is absolutely changing who we are. How does this transformation happen, guys? It's really, really simple and it's really, really hard. We need to get close to Jesus and allow him to do the work. Look at John 15, 5 and 8. This is what Jesus says. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see how Jesus says we're transformed and bear fruit and bear this change out? We simply abide in Christ. And this word to abide, it means to be fixed to or or to hang on to or to be close to. Um, It's interesting. One of the primary ways the Bible describes our relationship with Jesus is that he is the groom and we are the bride. He he uses marriage terms. And I think it's so fitting, and and here's why. And I'm going to use you, Ty and Riss, as an example. Um, When you guys got married, your life changed, right? Right, Tyler, when you got married, you viewed the world no longer as, what do I want to do? It became about you and Riss. What are we going to do? How are we going to spend our time? How are we going to manage our finances? What are our hopes and dreams? What do we want our family to be like? Once you get married, the way you view the world changes from it being about you to about being about you and your spouse. I becomes we. The same thing is true, church, when we abide in Christ. What happens is the way I live life, it's no longer about me and what I want. It's what would Christ have for me? 
What would honor Jesus as I go to work this week? When I interact with my spouse, what would honor the Lord? When I'm with my co-workers, how can I represent Christ? Well, you see, it changes how we view the world and view our lives. To abide in Christ means he becomes the filter by which you view your life day in, day out, just like your spouse changes how you view the world. Here's the big idea, church. It's this. It's if you believe that Christian transformation equals becoming a better person, you're missing it. You're playing the wrong game. Here's what I'm driving at. Jesus wants to make you new and alive. Settling for anything less is a failure. A few years ago, I was talking with a, another pastor who was a friend of mine, and he, he said, Cal, you have to understand, at the end of the day, um, people only change about 10% different from their parents. Because at the end of the day, we're all just like our folks, and maybe we're 10% better, or maybe we're 10% worse, but, but people don't really get transformed. You just kind of are what your parents are, and we're just trying to make them 10% better. And I was like, that's nonsense. That's garbage. It's denying the supernatural power of God in our life. That's not what you see with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a greedy, selfish, money-hungry person. He got next to Jesus. He gave away half of everything he owned, and he paid back everyone he stole from. Like, he's like, my heart is transformed because I got next to Jesus. Um, we have uh, good friends of ours who, um, about six months ago, were just in a, a storm of life. You ever have those moments in life where everything's going bad? You guys know what that feels like? Um, they were having um, work issues. They were having family issues. They were having health issues. It was like everything was hitting at once. And we were sitting down. We were having dinner with them. And I asked them, how are you guys doing? How are you guys navigating this hard season? And the wife goes, Cal, um, I'm actually doing really good because I can hear Jesus again. And I'm like, explain to me what you mean. And they're like, well, when everything was, was, was kind of hitting the fan, uh, for a while I just got down and I just got depressed and I was like, this is overwhelming and I was just trying to survive. But she's like, over the last few weeks, I've just really, really set aside time in my day to get in God's word, to put on worship music and I'm abiding in Jesus again and I can hear him and he's helping me and he's changing how I'm viewing these circumstances and these relationships and he's allowing me to have joy even in the midst of a difficult season because Jesus is reshaping how I'm viewing my reality. And I'm like, okay, there's someone who gets it. And church, here's what I would say, and like, I, I wish it was different. There's no silver bullet in Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? Like so often people come to me and they're just dealing with hard situations. And I'm like, I wish I could tell you, just say this prayer or do this thing and everything's gonna get better. No, what the Christian walk is, it's us holding on to Jesus, allowing him to shape how we view our reality and our life and looking at his life, how we loved others, how he cared for us and saying, I want to represent that to those in my life. He's not here to make us just better. He's here to make us new. All right, here's the fifth thing we see. It's this, is that lives transformed by Jesus will always be countercultural. Lives transformed by Jesus will be countercultural. We will be different than the rest of the people in our life who don't know Jesus, right? Look at the words he uses in verse 17 again. I love this picture. He goes, no longer walk in the way the Gentiles do. And he gives this analogy of walking, and he's saying there's one path, which is the course of this world. And he's like, you can follow that path, or there's this new path, which is the way of Jesus, and you can follow that path. And he's saying to follow Jesus will be 
countercultural. So as I was finishing up this message, I was like, man, here's what I want to do. I want to give some countercultural ways that we can live that show that we're being transformed by Jesus. But here's my fear. I'm worried I'm about to just give you a checklist, which is exactly what I don't want to do because these are things that can only happen when we abide in Christ and he becomes the filter by which we view the world. So even as I give these, I, I do it with a little bit of hesitation. But here's three Christ-driven countercultural moves we can make this week. Here's the first. Um, put off selfishness and put on humility and generosity. Um, we've hit on this idea so much um, this past year in our Worldview series. But one of the interesting things about our culture is that selfishness, not only is it not viewed as a bad thing anymore, it's actually a virtue, right? Like if you are selfish in our culture today, you're actually the hero. Be true to yourself. Have your own truth. Everything is pushing you inwards. Um, here's a question. How many of y'all watched the Super Bowl this weekend? Come on, you can raise your hand. I'm not going to get you in trouble, right? Yeah, a bunch of us watched the Super Bowl. I did. How'd you like the ads? Thumbs up if you liked the Super Bowl ads. Thumbs down if you didn't like the Super Bowl ads. Let me see. I'm getting mostly thumbs down. It was a rough year. Um, here's what blew me, blew me away about the Super Bowl ads. It felt like every other ad was either for cryptocurrency or sports gambling. Did you guys pick up on that? It was like crypto, you know, draft kings, crypto sports book. It was all about gambling and investing in crypto. And here's the thing. I'm not out on investing in crypto. If you guys have invested in it, that's great. I don't care. Here's my problem with crypto. I've had like 15 smart people try to explain it to me, and I still don't understand it. Right? And it's this whole thing. It's like, just give us your money. Invest in this thing that really no one can understand, and I promise it's going to go well for you. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't, like, that's not usually how life works. And then sports gambling, right? Sports betting has become legal in our country, and there's been this arms race in every state. Who can legalize it the fastest? Because states want tax dollars, and now all of these sports books are opening, and no one's even stopping to have the conversation. Maybe there was a reason why gambling was illegal, because it devastates families and relationships. No one's even talking about that. It's like, bet here, bet here, bet here, bet here. If you have a gambling addiction, please call 1-800, you know, blah, blah, blah at the end, right? Like, it's like, let's not focus on the fact that it like destroys people. Let's just get more, get more, get more, get it fast, get it easy, get money without having to work. All of it is feeding this selfishness. And by the way, again, if we're honest, all of us know we have selfishness in us. It's the nature of our sinful hearts. And here's the truth for me, if I could be transparent. It's so easy for me to just view my life through what do I need to do. Like I'm the guy that goes to work and has a checklist and what do I have to accomplish? And if I'm not careful, I can go all day thinking about what I have to get done and what I need to do and not be engaged with the others in the office. So what humility for me looks like is, is I want to treat others as greater than myself. So I want to go into the office with a day of not just what do I need to do, but how can I be a blessing to others? And maybe that's just taking 15 minutes and going in someone's office and talking, how's your day going? How's your life going? How can I be praying for you? Right? I want to be generous. I don't want to just think about me, but I want to be a blessing to others. So when I go to the coffee shop, rather than getting one coffee, I get three or four and I spend the extra six bucks and I bring them to the office and I can bless someone by giving them a cup of coffee in the morning. The gospel um, frees us from the prison that is ourselves. And, and here's my challenge to you. If you want to live countercultural, wake up every day this week and ask yourself the question, how can I be a blessing to the people I work with or the people I come in contact with? It will make you stand out. Here's the next one. Um, we need to put away bitterness and slander and put on forgiveness and kindness. 
we had, um, Mary was doing a project in our house. She was um, redoing our offices, and we had some guys helping move some shelving in a couple weeks ago, and I was around. And what blew my mind away is the guys that were moving stuff in, it was just like they were just trashing one of the guys they worked with. It was four guys talking, and they were just slamming another guy in their company. He's so lazy. He has a terrible work ethic. He's garbage. You know, all of those things. And, And I'm like, man, we can't talk about people that way. I think one of the hardest commands Jesus gives us is he says, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And I think that's really, really difficult to do. Here's why, and I'll use you as an example, Amber. If someone's so mad at you that they're cursing you, what are the chances they're actually doing it to your face? Probably not that high, right? When, when people are mad and they curse you, they're doing it behind your back. They're doing it to others. They're, they're trashing your reputation to others. So when Jesus calls us to bless those that curse us, oftentimes that means that while we're in the process of being cursed, we're choosing to be kind and we're choosing not to swing back and we're choosing to, to, to bless while the attack is happening. When everything in us is screaming, that's not fair and that's not right. And the only way we can get there is if we hold on to Jesus and see, look at the abuse he took when he didn't deserve it. Look at how he laid his life down for his enemies. You see, this can only be something that happens when we abide in Christ. And then here's the last one. Um, We need to put off relativism and put on conviction and truth. Or maybe here's a better way to ask it. Um, Does your theology dictate your experience, or does your experience dictate your theology? Right? We live in a culture where everything's relative. What's best for you is just what's best. There's no absolute truth. And and what I want to ask is, I think, the way to live countercultural is say, no, there is objective truth, and I'm going to live a life of conviction, which what means what I think about the Lord and His Word is what's going to define my life. Like, let me give you an example. I've done a lot of pre-marriage counseling, and um, what happens is, is I'll get a young couple, and here's what they'll say. They're like, I know what God's word says. I know that sex is designed as a gift within marriage, and, and that to have sex outside of marriage is an offense to God, but here's the problem. We really, really love each other, Right? And I know what's right, but my experience is is I'm very attracted to this person, and that feels right in the moment. And I'm like, all right, so you have a decision to make. What's going to define your life? Is it your experience, or is it conviction about what God's Word says? Right? Many of us would say, you know, we're called to honor our authority, that they've been placed above us by God, that He's working in our lives through the authorities He places over us. And that gets really, really hard when you have the boss who's an idiot, Right? And it's like, but why do I have to listen? And he's a jerk and he doesn't treat me fairly, right? We have an experience where it's really hard to be under unjust authority, but we've got this theology and conviction that says, even if your authority is unfair, entrust yourself to the Lord. He's gonna work through it and he's gonna bless you. Right, even community in church, right? I know that I need to be a part of a small group. I know that I need community. I know I need to surround myself with people who love Jesus and build them up and allow them to build me up, right? But when it's Saturday night or Sunday night and it's small group and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're stressed out, like, man, it'd be way easier just to turn on the TV and veg out at home, right? So what's gonna define your decision? Is it your conviction over what's right or is it your experience? So here's what I would ask you to do. Can you just bow your heads and close your eyes? 
I want to close with um, this last verse. It's Galatians 6, 9. It's my life verse. Paul gives a, a, a challenge to the Galatian church. He says this. He says, and let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He, he's saying, listen, God will bless your obedience. But the problem is that sometimes there's a big gap between what we sow and what we reap. And it's in that in-between time when it doesn't seem fair, when you feel stuck, where it's like, am I gonna hang in there? Am I going to live out of conviction that God sees and that his promises can be trusted or am I going to give up? What type of person do we wanna be? Do we wanna be people that are tossed to and fro by all the waves and every wind of doctrine or do we wanna be people that hold firm and live out of conviction? We can only do this when we draw near to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. God, would you do a work in our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Would you make us alive to your truth? Would you do a new transforming work in our hearts even this week? May we live with humility and kindness and conviction. May we live in a way that shows clearly to everyone we come in contact with that our lives are marked by Christ. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.